0: Edition of ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the ABI Scholar-in-Residence for the spring 2016, and I'm also a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today's topic is an unusual governance structure in an unusual kind of bankruptcy case. The structure is a committee of students in a Chapter 11, and the Chapter 11 case is Corinthian, which was among the largest for-profit post-secondary education companies in the United States and Canada. We're lucky to have two guests today who represented that committee of students: Scott Gautier, a partner at Robbins Kaplan in L.A., a former member of ABI's board of directors, and Chris Ward, a shareholder at Polsonelli in Wilmington, Delaware, and also practice co-chair there, and currently on the ABI's board of directors. Welcome to both of you.
1: Thank you, much
2: Good afternoon.
0: So, Scott, let me start by asking you some about the the context here uh, so federal education laws deter the filing of education bankruptcies so it really wasn't a foregone conclusion that even a truly financially distressed education provider with no liquidity would enter bankruptcy so how did corinthian get into bankruptcy why did it file
1: corinthian had sold all the schools that it could ed was effectively blocking the sale of the remaining schools and campuses And a company like Corinthian will often utilize Chapter 11 uh, to benefit from the automatic stay. If you recall, there was a lot of director and officer litigation that was going on, and there was a lot more that was threatened. And it'll utilize a formal process to dissolve the company and bring things to a close uh, and hopefully uh, extricate some of the directors and officers from litigation or at least Put a process in place by which uh, everything is is funneled to conclusion, and so only where we see a private school that is out of business and done are we are we likely to see uh, a formal bankruptcy process.
0: So we're using bankruptcy for the other tools that are offered, as we see in many Chapter 11s, rather than a traditional reorganization, which would never have been possible here.
1: Absolutely, it is. Um, completely within the Department of Education's discretion, uh, and I don't think they would ever approve um, uh, a school continuing to remain eligible for Title IV funding after it has filed for bankruptcy. Uh, The law is that uh, once you file for bankruptcy, you're no longer eligible without Ed's consent to continue to, to have access to Title IV funding.
0: So Corinthian files... The U.S. trustee appoints an ordinary creditors committee in the case, uh, but there was a request and uh, apparently granted to have a a special student committee. So, Chris, take us through the basis for appointing that special committee. and Who had to be convinced to make that happen, and was anyone skeptical about it? Well, I think the best
2: way to start this was that the matter originally uh, came in through Scott and Robbins Kaplan, as well as public counsel who um, had the relationship with the students. And they worked with the students prior to the bankruptcy filing and leading up to the bankruptcy um, to organize them and get a an ad hoc committee set up of the students. Um, it was at that point that my firm in Delaware was approached uh, to be you know, local counsel, co-counsel to the committee. Um, and our role was to serve as Delaware Bankruptcy Counsel and to advise the students and Robbins Kaplan and Public Counsel on procedure in Delaware and to really get them familiar with our court system and our, our trustee's office. Um, now, this case was in Delaware, but this, this could have been in any jurisdiction. I think one of the underestimated facts in any bankruptcy case is the, uh, the ability of outside counsel to rely on local counsel um, in the jurisdiction to become familiar with bankruptcy practice and procedure in that jurisdiction. Um, you know, Paul Snelling in particular in this case um, was needed to talk to the office of the United States trustee um, and make introductions uh, between all the the students and the the lawyers involved and and in any case it's always great to have a firm with a good relationship with Chambers because getting in with Chambers and and the court system is uh, is the most efficient way to get the committee um, process moving. Um, What we did here was Robbins Kaplan had sent a letter to the Office of the United States Trustee requesting that the trustee form an official committee of students um, after the, uh, the official committee of unsecured creditors was formed. Um, that is typically the first step in the process to have an alternative committee formed, um, is to have it done by letter, uh, specifically requesting that the Office of the United States Trustee solicit interest in an alternative committee. Um, The trustee by step by the bankruptcy code automatically solicits interest of general unsecured creditors in every case, and assuming there's three interested unsecured creditors is going to form a committee. Um, We've seen a lot of instances with this ad hoc committee approach uh, requesting that the trustee form an alternative committee. I think the largest group we've seen there is there's equity committees in several cases. Um, We've also seen some landlord committees and retiree committees. In this instance, uh, we approach the trustee about soliciting interest in a student committee. Um, After the trustee receives that request, they typically go to the debtor and the lender and other major constituencies in the case and ask them to reply as to whether a committee is needed in this particular case. Um, The trustee then makes a decision on whether to solicit the committee or not. And I think it's important to note that what the trustee does in these cases is the trustee uh, gauges interest in whether it should solicit creditors in order to serve on an alternative official committee. Um, it's not that the trustee actually forms a committee. What the trustee does is if it determines in its sole discretion, basically, if the committee is needed, it interest, and it still has to receive at least three interested creditors that are willing to serve on that alternative committee.
1: We were consulted specifically for our bankruptcy advice. We were asked specifically, again, prior to Corinthians bankruptcy, whether we could help students utilize Chapter 11 uh, on an involuntary basis against Corinthian to avoid the anti-class agreements and the binding arbitration provisions that are contained in their enrollment agreements. As most bankruptcy practitioners know, chapter 11 does not really offer a way to avoid binding arbitration or class waivers. However, what we noted to the students is that if Corinthian, if we could get Corinthian into a bankruptcy proceeding, which we thought was unlikely as long as they were gonna continue to operate because of the Title IV issues that we just spoke about, uh, it would offer the opportunity for collective proceedings, even aside from a class action, through a class of creditors that could participate uh, in the case. So we knew that we wanted a student committee, that we would like to see Corinthian in a bankruptcy case because there are these anti-class waivers and these mandatory arbitration provisions that made it difficult for the students to act as a class. Once they filed um we did the letter, but we reached out to Chris Ward in particular at Polsonelli. Um as Chris has said, what was you know, we need local counsel in Delaware, but even if we didn't need, you know, required to have local counsel in Delaware, you want local counsel like the Polsonelli group that has the relationships with the US Trustees Office that knows the courts and knows the process. Because eleven oh two is a discretionary uh, uh, statute. You know, no one has to give you a committee just because you ask for it. And so it's the way that you ask for it and the way you make your arguments that was so important to us and to be able to to utilize Chris and his firm was, was really key to making sure that we got a committee appointed.
0: So, Scott, you raised some interesting points about the nature of the claims that the students have. Uh, Students are both debtors and creditors in, of course, a lot of different ways, but uh, even with respect to Corinthian, there seems to be a lot of different things the students might have wanted out of this process, whether it is money or relief uh, from student loans, the ability to finish their education. How did you prioritize those issues?
1: A Corinthian student's set in a different position than many other students at many other schools in terms of their student loans. These are not students that were just, you know, overcharged and they find that their educations, you know, they're unable to pay for their overpriced educations. These are, these are people that were lied to and deceived and didn't receive what it was they were promised that they would receive. And so the difference being in that the Corinthian students, really, we believe, should not be responsible for these obligations that were, uh, you know, garnered by by fraud and deceit. And so, um, we tried to utilize the Corinthians bankruptcy case to give the students uh, some leverage with the Department of Education in terms of negotiating for uh, uh, a greater relief um, and cancellation of debt.
0: And can you shed any light on how you did that? I know some of it must be confidential, but how did you work with the Department of Education? How did you exercise that leverage?
1: What we tried to do, um, we tried to utilize the automatic stay um, to and extend that to the repayment of student loans. We tried to infringe upon... Uh, the Department of Education and get the Bankruptcy Court to infringe upon the Department of Education's uh, discretion um, in the process. And I think the Bankruptcy Court helped us in that regard and gave us some leverage uh, in terms of its uh, rulings uh, from the bench. And I think as the Department of Education saw that the Bankruptcy Court may infringe on its discretion in certain ways it was more willing to, to talk with us. The, I would say that, you know, would have to recognize that the California attorney general's office that had been working on this problem since 2007 and had dedicated probably tens of millions of dollars to investigating and auditing uh, Corinthian records historically, uh, was able to do much more than what what we were able to do in the span of you know six months, six to eight months during the case. Uh, we were happy to be able to you know lend our voice and allow some of the students to lend their voice uh, to the issues uh, but you know to date, I would say that the the real gains with the Department of Education in terms of what they 've done uh, for Corinthian students has been you know mostly based uh, almost entirely based on what the California attorney general was able to do
0: so you're involved in an ongoing basis on this in this case uh can you tell us where things stand now and how they appear relative to where they how they looked at the time that there was a a, a plan being confirmed
1: sure one of the things that the the student committee was able to do was to modify the plan the plan that was initially proposed in the case, would have been a single pot plan. It would have provided absolutely zero dollars to any creditors, and it would not have provided for any sort of a group that could continue to work and get paid, you know, to work for student problems. And what we wanted was a little bit of cash that was available in the estate to pay for a trust that would be overseen by student creditors that could be utilized to at least do administrative work and try to further students' efforts uh, to work with the Department of Education, to work with the state attorneys generals. And so what that trust has done uh, to date has focused, one, on student records. All of these student records have been pretty much abandoned now to the student trust We've had to go around the country and find the student records and uh, uh, bring them together and um, uh, bring them to a single location. Um, they're not well organized. They're, they're much better organized today. But what we really want to do is bring together the state AG, the CFBP, and the student trust and come up with a final solution that relates to private student Uh, loans, canceling or limiting those obligations for Corinthian students, and then continue to work with the uh, Department of Education to get a final plan in place um, that will uh, essentially cancel as much of the Corinthian student loan debt as possible.
0: So from these descriptions, it sounds like it's taken a village to get even this far um, in a lot of different institutions and parties at at work here. Um, Chris, let me get your perspective here about how you saw bankruptcy intersecting with these other mechanisms that were meant to protect students, but somehow, at least up to this point, had, had fallen short.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think what's very interesting about the Corinthian situation is that most of the protections in the bankruptcy code are set up to assist students with discharge of student debt. Um, This was not the situation that we were faced with in Corinthian, as as Scott was just going through. We're um, confronted with a situation where we were not facing Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code that deals with discharge of student debt because the student themselves were filing for bankruptcy. That's the typical situation that when you hear college debt, student loans, and bankruptcy in the same sentence, it deals with students that are filing bankruptcy. That was not the case here, not at all. In Corinthian, these students who incurred this inordinate amount of student debt were faced with this situation where the college itself filed for bankruptcy. And then they were left with having to pay these student loans or having incurred this tremendous amount of debt for a college that no longer existed, was sold to another college, and that in turn diminished the value of their degree and the education they received itself and and really put them in a lurk. For purposes of the bankruptcy code, though, these students were now, unfortunately, really no different than any other creditor of a bankruptcy estate. That is not something that uh, the bankruptcy code had been um, established to deal with was a, a student creditor of a, uh, of a debtor. And that is why the student committee was so important, because these students needed a voice in the case, because as Scott just went through, they were the victims of what the California attorney general said was fraud. So they were saddled with this debt that was at this point in time being investigated by Ed um, on behalf of the Department of Justice, and the students were actually the aggrieved party in this situation. So what the student committee had to do was assist them um, in the bankruptcy, uh, in, in getting their voice heard, and really what their, the biggest thing that their voice could do there was assist Ed and the Department of Justice and the Attorney General with the fraud investigation Itself. Um, with respect to actual claims that students held um, where they did intersect with the bankruptcy code, um, most of those claims fell under section 507A7 of the bankruptcy code. Um, and 507A7 allows for a priority general and secured claim um, for any individual up to the amount of $1,800 uh, for claims arising from the deposit before the commencement of the bankruptcy case of money. For among other things services to be rendered so here there were several students who qualified for section 507 a 7 claim based on prepayment to Corinthian colleges um, on behalf of services to be rendered um, that never were rendered because the colleges were shut down and sold off so the one thing that the Student Committee was able to do as part of this plan process was there was money set aside in order to pay these uh, allowed 507 a7 priority claims um, to get paid up to the statutory maximum amount Um, but one thing that we're doing now on behalf of the student trust is we're reviewing all of the allowed the uh, priority claims that were filed to make sure that only the proper claims are getting filed but in large part to make sure that that review is done quickly and that these students can get the money that they're entitled to to get under the bankruptcy code um, so from a, from a true bankruptcy perspective, that was really the, the intersection between bankruptcy and the students, because most of the protections in the bankruptcy code um, are under Section 523 and relate to dischargeability of student debt. And we've seen several cases going all the way up to the Supreme Court dealing with dischargeability of student loans. But that was not the situation that we had here. Um, Here, these students were the aggrieved creditors. And unfortunately, um, they were in a position as a creditor not much different than any other creditors of the Chapter 11 case.
0: So let me ask you, Chris, if you could compare some of the governance structures that we see in bankruptcy to protect parties that may have some creditor interest but also... Play a somewhat different role. So, in healthcare bankruptcies, we have a patient ombudsperson sometimes appointed to look out for patient interests. What do you think of the ombuds model versus a, a committee model for these kinds of situations?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, the ombudsman model or the ombudsperson model um, is something that really sets up a monitoring status of the bankruptcy case as opposed to an active status. Uh, Section 333A of the Bankruptcy Code calls for the appointment of this patient care ombudsman if a healthcare business files for bankruptcy and, and there are certain other criteria that are met. Um, then, Section 333B allows this patient care ombudsperson to monitor the quality of patient care, um, assure that all confidential records are kept, kept confidential, and then what they do is they report back to the bankruptcy court with respect to their findings. Um, That type of role is drastically different than the role that an official committee serves in the case. The main objective of the ombudsperson is to monitor, and and they're monitoring a specific subset of information and then reporting back to the court. Conversely, the official committee in the case, whether it's a student committee, a creditors committee, an equity committee, um, takes an active role in the bankruptcy case. Um, using the Corinthian College's case, for an example, the, the student committee's purpose was not just to monitor the Chapter 11 case, but it was to be a zealous advocate for students. And, and that is the role that we played on behalf of the committee was getting the student's voice before the court. Um, we actually had several of the student members of the committee appeared at some of the hearings um, and were introduced to Judge Berry to, to put a face to the student committee. A lot of the times... In these bankruptcy cases, the creditors committee is large hedge, fund, hedge funds or other creditors that you see all the time in Chapter 11. That was not the case here. These students were, were normal people that graduated from high school, went to college, expected to get a college degree and be able to use that degree to enhance their place in life. And unfortunately, given the Corinthian College situation, um, they were prevented from doing that or at least... Their, the time frame for doing that was pushed back, so we had to advocate on behalf of these students to the court, and as, as Scott talked about, got provisions in the plan that is going to help them over time, um, you know, hopefully have all of this student loans discharged by ED as part of the investigation process that's going on. So I, th- I think that there is a very important distinction between an ombuds person. And a committee in a case, because the committee is really an active player in the bankruptcy proceedings and advocates on behalf of his client. Where on the, the flip side, the ombudsman really just monitors and reports back to the court. Yeah,
1: I'll, I'll tell you though, from our experience, I think from from mine and Chris's experience uh, with the Corinthian case, you know, if if another one of these cases comes up and we see a large uh, institution filing on behalf of the student committee. Um, I think one of the lessons we've learned is one of the things we, we probably asked for early in the case is a student ombudsman as well just to deal with the issue of, of student records and transcripts, because there really is a hole in the law uh, with respect to the, the maintenance of those uh, records and the, and the obligation. And that's a very important, um, it's a very important thing for students. I mean, can you imagine if you couldn't get transcripts related to your, uh your former education you know, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life
0: well as a teacher i i, I certainly shudder at that uh i i your your points about student records are really quite eye opening we tend to think of this as their their career prospects and their dollars and cents and this connects very closely with with that and uh also it does it does connect with an uh uh concept of of where where is the paperwork going, and especially student records contain sensitive information just like health records do, so there's that element as well so scott can you can you think of a scenario where you wouldn't a student committee would not be appropriate in an education bankruptcy?
1: No, absolutely not. I think that wherever you have uh you know an educa- large educational institution. The the student claims are so different from those of your general unsecured trade creditors, you know, people that are providing goods and services to the educational facility. The the student claims are are much different. Um, They are a class that that needs to be represented and needs to be heard. And, And particularly with these student loan issues, not only with respect to the other constituents in the bankruptcy case, but as to the Department of Education, as to Congress and the political uh, people that are working on these issues, I think it's very important that the students for each institution have their own voice through a committee if there is a bankruptcy case. Uh, I'll tell you one of the things that, that you know, I learned in this case, there are a lot of entities and organizations out there that are sympathetic to the cause and the plight of students with respect to student loans. But as I said, with the Corinthian students, you need to distance yourself to some extent, even though these are people that are advocating against student loan debt, they're advocating on the on a, on a, on very different grounds than, than what you, uh, than the grounds that, the, for example, the Corinthian students have. Um, so there's political grounds and there's political positions that people can take as against the fairness of student loans as a whole. But you want to have an advocate for the Corinthian students that says, look, uh, you know, we may agree or disagree with respect to the student loan scheme in the United States, but our, our issue is very different we were promised the product, we were lied to, we were deceived with respect to a product we were buying. So whether or not you believe that student loans are good or bad, that people should repay their student loans, that's a different argument. You know, our issue is as borrowers who were deceived in terms of what they were receiving and what they were buying, uh, should should there be relief with respect to our obligations? And so I think it's very, very necessary that students for every institution have their own committee.
0: Well, yet again, it looks like bankruptcy is a window into much bigger socioeconomic problems in the U.S., uh, and I want to thank Scott Gautier and Chris Ward for joining us today to talk about this issue in this case.
1: Melissa, thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: And thank you to ABI podcast listeners. We will be talking with you again soon.